Welcome to the 19th episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. This week is a very exciting episode. It is a very thoughtful listener question. Introduced it at the end of last week's episode, talking about how it's focused on how you value yourself. But I thought we'd start with reading the question... The listener says, I just discovered your podcast. I really appreciate your approach. Thank you. My question is about self-care. In Polly, we run into situations where our partners have things planned outside of the relationship with us and choose to be away from us. When this happens, we have to choose ourselves. Eve Rickett discusses another side of this coin briefly in more than two, which is funny because we just mentioned that and Eve last episode, so that works out pretty well in her section (laughs) on worthiness. She describes not knowing what it is like to feel worthy and not being able to explain to anyone how she finally came by that knowledge. Hmm. I have discovered that I am drawing personal validation primarily from outside sources. When I am left by myself and didn't want to be, I have to choose myself. That's tough to do because my validation for being worthy has then literally walked out the door. And this affects every part of my life. Wow. She goes on to say, can you discuss the ethical frameworks for self-value? By the way, that is going to end up being this whole show. It may take a while to do some of the other pieces of this, but just an ethical framework for self-value, I think, is worth an entire 45 minutes of discussion because ethical frameworks themselves are very complex. Yeah. Okay. What a rough place to be in. I completely empathize with this listener. I have found in myself that I take a lot of value out of those around me too. And it's hard when, I mean, right now I've been single longer than I have since I was 18. The loneliness, it's consuming when all of your value is put into those around you. And it's hard to change that and know what to do with that. It's funny that this is our topic tonight because both of my nesting partners are out on dates tonight. You're you're meeting us though. So you had social plans anyway. Right. I I (laughs) had it already. (laughs) But I mean, I think this is a good example. I have something to do. Mm -hmm. I've learned to spread out what I put my worth in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't put my worth just in my partners. I am guilty of putting my worth a little bit in Mm -hmm. them for sure. I don't know if that's guilty. I think some of our value has to be reflected from the outside. Otherwise, it's purely an internal system where you get to just decide works for you, which isn't terrible. But one of my favorite quotes from the Hagakure, which is a Japanese ancient book on wisdom, is when we make decisions using only our own sagacity, we turn inward become self-interested and things don't turn out well. Mm. And I think that's the the same sort of thing. You need that outside reflection. The more opinions, the better. Oh, yeah. I do agree with that. I have other things besides my partners. I have this podcast. Mm -hmm. I have APW. I have my three children. We have two new puppies. You know, (laughs) I have my work and I have my friends and other partners that I maybe don't have as close of relationships with. I've just, I've learned to not put my worth all in one place. And that's how I combat that. Not to say that, you know, if I wasn't doing this podcast tonight, it wouldn't be kind of rough. Because mm-hmm. in all honesty, it doesn't happen very often where they're both out. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, Tuesday night, too. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. We, we often do our recordings on Tuesdays, so... <laughs> My son's here tonight, so we spent some time together earlier, and I don't get a lot of one-on-one time with him, so that was kind of nice. But yeah, I mean, I think the distraction when your partners or partner are out on a date, you've got to find other things to put your mind to. And the more you get interested in those things and the more you become involved with other things, I think that that helps you spread your worth out. 
So there's going to be two things that we're going to do while we're going through this, obviously. We're going to talk about strategies, and then we're going to talk about philosophy, right? So the ethical framework is a philosophical question that isn't the same as strategies for coping with your Mm -hmm. emotional needs. I'm not saying those are unimportant. I just want to always separate when we're doing ethics and when we're doing application. Um, For this particular episode, because it's a question of the underlying logical framework we're using to make those decisions about what counts as ethical. Because she goes on to ask some really difficult, deep and specific questions. So she goes on to say, I have thought about the nature of value, both relating to self value and also as an abstract concept to change over time and circumstances. This seems to have interesting implications for Polly. I have thought about the feedback problem of external validation, which is volatile and potentially toxic depending on environment, but also the lack of feedback problem of the internal self-value circuit that does not require outside information on how one is doing. There is at least one problem because you cannot become better if you don't find fault with yourself. This is sort of the same, you need outside opinions that I was just saying, mm-hmm. the, the Hagakure quote. Giving yourself carte blanche to yourself and love yourself and want to be with yourself unconditionally no matter what seems like a violation of ethics for someone who holds themselves to a higher standard. How do self-value and self-love relate? If we tell someone how to make us feel valued, i.e. love languages, and then they follow our instructions, how can we determine the difference between feeling valued and being valued? That's one that I think I talked before about that I wrestled with when I was younger, that I always felt like if I had to tell you what I needed, then it didn't mm-hmm. count anymore. Like if I was mm-hmm. like, I need you to do X, Y, and Z, and then you just did that, but nothing beyond or above that, I felt like you didn't know me. Like I was just telling you what right. to do and you were following instructions. So that's a question I think a lot of people struggle with. What's the difference between going through the motions and actually expressing value? To what extent can a person earn one's own value? If value is a measure of trade between people, does the concept have any relevance to a system that only includes one person? I.e., can one in fact trade with oneself, thereby creating the possibility of value that isn't checked by other people? If so, was being traded? So you can see a lot of these questions don't necessarily go to coping skills, although some of the later ones, some of the middle ones did, but actually go to just really the question of, and not even just self-value, what is value? What ethical framework for value do we as a group employee, or at least the show going to use the underlying value framework that we work from. I feel like this question's over my head. (laughs) Well, it's okay, because what's going to happen is I'm going to tell you what existentialism says about this, which is the ethical framework we employ, and then we'll talk about how that applies and how that works with the specific advice that you have. Okay. And I think it will work very well. I'm a little lost myself. Uh, How does self-worth connect to ethicality? Self-worth affects the ethicality because ethic is, at a basic level, a question of how we value. Why is an activity good or bad? Why is a person good or bad? I think, generally speaking, you would say that a person who is highly ethical is the same as saying a person who has high value. I I can't imagine saying this person has high value and zero ethics or bad ethics or is unethical. I don't... Mm -hmm know what the value of being around a person like that would be. But what about the other way around? Oh, like low, high ethics, but low value? Right. And there's a lot of discussion about this in philosophy. There's a question that says, is something truly an ethical value if you don't act on it? So people will say, well, I think one should help people in need, but then never help anyone in need. And people will say, I don't know that you really have that value. You might have intellectually figured out that is a good value to have, but you don't actually possess it. Because if you did, the value itself would motivate you. Yeah. That just goes to a question of if you think ethics exists in praxis, which have I used that word before? Praxis is a term out of minority critique and feminist philosophy, I think, probably introduced primarily by black feminist authors in the area of intersectionality, although I don't have the names of who started using it first, and it's a general English word, so it's not as specific as intersectionality. It basically is a replacement for philosophy in action. 
So people would want to say that philosophy or ethics isn't really ethics unless it also exists in practice. So if you're just theorizing but not living the ethical code that you're talking about, then you're not really part of that ethics. And that's at least a value that I hold. I don't think that anyone that doesn't have the courage of their conviction to live the ethics that they're claiming has really done the work of the ethics. Because if you believe that this is what you have to do to be a good or healthy or happy person and to help others and be good to others, and then you do the opposite of that, I don't know how you even would and still have a self-value. That's how it gets into self-value. Usually what we do is if you're doing self-valuation, you check your ethical code versus what you've been doing, and that's how you decide if you're doing well or not. Okay. Okay. Right, to tie that back to your question. Because you're going to use the same ethics term, right? You're going to say, I'm a bad person. I'm a good person when you talk about your value. So now that you've broken that down, how does that tie into polyamory? Or is that what we're going to address? Well, she is saying what I have often said, which is certain ethical frameworks have very interesting applications inside of interpersonal and especially multiple interpersonal relationships like polyamory. But I think, like most things, this applies to anybody in any form of relationship. One of the things Mm -hmm. we've talked about before that's a particular problem for monogamy is the current belief that your partner has to be everything to you. And that includes your entire source of outside valuation. That includes your entire auditing system. Basically, if your partner says what you're doing is ethical, then what you're doing is ethical regardless. If your partner says you're a good person, then you're a good person regardless. Polyamory breaks that up, but I think, as we've talked about many times, you bring in the scripts with you that you're used to. So maybe you understand that it was bad to get all of your valuation from one person when you're monogamous, but then if you just divide that between just partners, you're really in the same boat. You haven't broken that up amongst what we call stakeholders, which is all the stakeholders, or a stakeholder is anybody who your actions affect. Mm -hmm. So really, if you want to talk about if you're a good or bad person, you need the reflection of as many stakeholders as you can possibly get. Because that's what actually answers that question. Because if you go around harming everybody but being nice to your three partners and your three partners are like, you're great, and you're out there like robbing people at gunpoint to pay the bills, you're probably still not an ethical person, even though you're a great provider and you're, like, your family mm-hmm. life's really stable. I think the, the problem is the same, but you're just dividing that work among multiple people. And unlike monogamy, they don't have the built-in requirement to stay with you and make sure you constantly feel like someone's valuing you, which then means you didn't develop the coping skills for dividing that valuation out by all the stakeholders when you were coming up in a society that didn't teach you any of those skills, and now you have no one there to reflect back at you at the end of the day. This is why my original trajectory in my education went, I want to know how to be happier. So then I went to school and I was like, okay, well, that's, I just need to find out how to be more ethical then. Because if I'm more ethical, then I'm a better person. I'll feel good about myself. I'll be happier. And then I was like, okay, well, what is, what does that mean? And I ended up in linguistics because I was like, what does ethical mean? What does good mean? What does bad mean? So I ended up in what's called metaethics. And that's what this question is about. Okay. So metaethics is a question of not what action would make me good or bad, but what even would qualify an action for being good or bad. What does it mean to be good? Okay. You can say saving a life is good, but I can just go, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what would make that valuable? What's valuable about life or a person's specific life? So you actually have to have a framework behind that that says, here is why things are valuable. The most common ethical framework in American society, as I've described before, is what's called utilitarianism. And utilitarianism says that whatever provides the most good for the most people is the good thing. And utilitarianism, I still think, is a really good system for governmental decision-making. If you want to know if we should have universal health care, and you go, okay, well, if you add universal health care, it on average costs costs by 30 to 40%, and it increases coverage by 30 to 40%, and we have the 26th worst coverage of first world countries, and all the countries above us have socialized universal health care, I think it's really easy to see that you should have it, even though some people are going to be really mad about it. 
So some people will be miserable, some people will be upset, some people won't feel good about it, but there's just overwhelming evidence that it's going to generally improve people's life. Mm -hmm. But when I get down to two people and I say something like, should I go on a date tonight? And I go, well, who's the most good for the most number? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How do you know that? Mm -hmm. It's also a consequential theory, which means it matters what the consequences are. So it may be that I think it's going to be good because my partner wants me to go out on this date in this scenario. And the person that wants to go on the date on me wants to go out on the date with me. And I want to do that. But then I get out there and I actually really don't like this person. We don't hit it off. We have terrible chemistry. It turns out they're a Trump supporter. (laughs) And by the end of the night, I'm just miserable. And then I come home and like wake my partner up. And I'm like, I need emotional support because I'm just so pissed. And at the end of the day, I actually made everybody a psych worse. The thing about consequentialism is you don't actually get to know if it's a good action until after all the consequences come out. Mm -hmm. One of the funniest parts about consequentialism is there's some people that make points like, it's possible that the guy that developed vaccines is actually the worst human being in history from a consequentialist perspective because the number of people that didn't die to viruses and to bacteria that would have normally died to bacteria has led to a much more rapid overpopulation of the planet, which may actually lead to environmental collapse and kill billions of people. <laughs> so if you'd never created vaccines, we would have had another two or three hundred years to develop the technology to deal with the environmental crisis before we die. And in fact, that may kill everyone. So he actually responsible for the death of the human race <laughs> oh by trying to help people. <laughs> So that's the problem with consequentialist ethics as far as self-valuing. You never really can use it. What existentialism was and why I think it's so fascinating and so useful here is existentialism as a philosophical movement was a response that came out of World War II Europe asking the question, how do you create value in a world that doesn't have guaranteed value through a God figure? The claim was that part of the reason you got World War II is as Europe got more atheist, you could no longer say, well, God says don't do it, so don't do it. And people were working on a consequentialist ethics. You know, if the factory helps everybody, then we build the factory. And that was a lot of the claims that the Germans were making. They were like, well, really, if you kill everyone with a genetic disorder for only four or five generations, you'll have no more genetic disorders. And that'll be great. (laughs) Genghis Khan's a funny example because he killed off something like 20% of the world's population and it actually created a miniature ice age because of how much carbon usage it took away from the planet. So again, probably the greatest environmentalist of all time is Genghis Khan because he killed 20% of the human population and we're just a walking natural disaster. (laughs) But does that make him a good guy? Probably not. I don't think a guy that just murders people to get land is a great guy, even if it turns out that the 2000 year version outcome was good, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. Right. Yeah. Okay. You have to then say is, okay, well, how do you determine value in a world where you can't just say values are given? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Existentialists say that the answer to that is that the only real value you can have, and this is why I think they marry so amazingly well with polyamory, is the values you give yourself, which they're going to call freedom, mm-hmm. and which we're going to call consent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the only real value is having your own freedom and guaranteeing other people's freedom. That's the only way to know if I'm a good person, is basically if I'm giving other people their own freedoms. Because you have to be free to be self-determining of your own values. Because there are no objective values, each of us creates the values we wish to see reflected in the world, and then we pursue those values. But the one value that has to be universal is freedom. Because if you take away other people's freedom to work on your values, but you know that you made up your own values, you're being very inauthentic. You're lying to yourself if you think other people should respect your values because you made them up. Okay. Right, because normally people are going to say, you should respect my values because they're right. Okay. Like God said, or Kant and the deontologists are going to say, 
because it's logically correct. Mm-hmm. So like, lo- like I'm going to claim logic almost like a objective force so you can use pure logic to determine what the right thing to do is. And even if you agreed that ethics and logic were identical, how do you prove that logic is ethical? Why should I care about your logic? So even if logic ends up being the same as ethics, why does that matter to me? But when you know that you're creating your own values, your values matter to you because they're all you have and you made them. Mm-hmm. You should want to be able to make your own values, and the only way you can do that is if everybody respects freedom. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and that's sort of like when we were talking last week about if you're going to be poly, uh, you have to agree that whatever freedoms you're getting, your partner gets the same freedom. Mm -hmm. It's that same thing. (laughs) So, you can't, as we all know, you can't very well be free and open and have the deep hierarchical structure that everyone but you has to listen to. That never works. Mm You know, the only way that it's going to work is if you get the sort of equal level, you bring up everyone's freedoms at the same time. What does that look like beyond just producing freedom? Well, so part of the existentialist claim is answering another deep question, which is, what does it mean to be a sentient being? What's the difference between being sentient, like a human, and being a dog? Okay. Dogs, I believe, are wonderful people. I use the word person when I describe them to my child to try and explain the kind of value they have. They can feel, they can hurt, they can love. They can be sad. They can experience loss. But there's something fundamentally different about the way my dog experiences the world and the way that I experience the world because I have something that, as far as we know, no other species has the ability to do, which is to contemplate my own consciousness. Mm -hmm. I am aware that I'm thinking about things. I'm aware of my being aware. Mm -hmm. And my dog is not. My dog has thoughts, but my dog doesn't hear his own thoughts in his head the way that you do. He simply just does them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm existentialists are going to say so what's special about us then is that we're aware of what we're doing which means that we can which means that in addition to valuing things which all beings do we can decide what those values are okay if you say i'm hungry you can say no you're unhealthy to eat that food yeah i used to love my favorite food was these it's like seven thousand calorie brownies that harris teeter used to sell that was <laughs> like a two inch brownie made out of fudge mm. with an inch of cream cheese frosting oh. and then another two inch brownie and another inch of cream cheese oh my frosting. god that's and so amazing. I would eat that thing in a sitting <laughs> with like a half oh, gallon of milk. Wow. And I was always sick afterwards. It was so dense and it was so much food and so much milk. And I was, and it was, I just, I, I loved it. <laughs> and eventually my conscious mind was like, you're just killing yourself and you're always nauseous afterwards. Stop. Just stop. Right. And I was eventually able to stop eating them because my conscious mind just goes, okay, so I know my subconscious mind wants tasty food that's sweet, that's fulfilling, that's calorically dense, that makes me feel safe. And my conscious mind's like, but in the end, it's actually worse for you. You think this is good, it's not good. So we get to create our own values. But what's important is that we are creating our own values. Those values are not objective. Your subconscious values are evolutionary programming or cultural programming. And then your conscious values are the things you've decided for yourself, basically things that worked for you in the past or things that you've designed to see if they'll work for you in the future. (laughs) And in a sense, existentialists view this as a way of voting on what humanity should be. So every time you make an ethical decision and you say, like, people shouldn't hurt other people. You're actually not only saying what you should do or committing to what you should do, but you're voting on how humanity should act. Yeah. Okay. And in this way, we create shared ethics so that we can interrelate to other people. Because, and this is the part that's important about this reflection, existentialism is going to say, so the language is so dense, I'm really trying, this is very high level. If you, anyone out there is an existentialist philosopher, I apologize for the abbreviation of this. <laughs> you're already like way over my head. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think Sarah is there with me, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 
I'm, I'm, I'm right on the edge. Okay, so the language, which is so common in existentialism, for being followed by some sort of descriptor. So the three are being in itself, being for itself, and being for others is used to describe how beings exist in the world. And so being in itself is how Sartre and existentialists are going to say that non-sentient animals exist. So they just are. They have whatever their facticity is, which is the facts about their lives and their instincts and their needs, but they do not think about themselves from a third-person perspective. They don't go back and think, what did I do today? Why did I do that? How could I be better? What was I thinking about? They don't monitor or self-monitor their thoughts. So then what they want to say is that what's special about us is we're not just being in itself, we're actually being for itself, which means we craft how we want to be. We think about who do I want to be in the future? We think what sorts of projects we'd like to have at a later point and the kind of human being we'd like to think of ourselves as in five years or have other people see us as. Right, right. Then the third one is being for others. The struggle between being for others and being for itself is really going to be the crux of relationship tensions and how the sexual philosophies of Sartre are going to play out as being difficult. And I think this is particularly useful in polyamory as follows. First, being for others means when you realize that other people are perceiving you, you are suddenly being for others. And we actually care about how other people think about us. But how other people think about us, we all know, isn't how we are. So you continue to be for yourself while you're also being for others. And because we want people to think about us in a certain way, we adjust our behavior when we are confronted by the other. And so Sartre actually says, and I thought this was very fascinating, and he was trying to wrestle with why people seem to want lots of partners but don't want their partners to have lots of partners, Hmm. which is something I certainly run into a lot in poly where you meet people and they go, oh, I'd love to be poly, but I'm too jealous to let my partner be poly. That was my hurdle. And you're like, well, then why would you love to be poly if you think it would be harmful? Like, that's a weird <laughs> yeah. sort of a thing. And we were talking about how the person that wrote the original question was putting all of their eggs in one basket for how they see themselves. So in existentialist language, how you see yourself is your being for others. So Sartre says the more people who are really important to you, the more diversified your being for others is and the less, the more stable it becomes. So the less that one person's opinion can destroy you. So if your being for others is comprised of 10 important opinions and one person says, I think you're a bad person, and nine people say, I think you're a good person, then you're going to go, I feel pretty good about Mm -hmm. myself. All right. I just just brought it around now. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But if your being for others has been located down to a single person or maybe two people or three people in the listener's question, so just your partners, then when you don't have those people, you suddenly either, if their opinion changes, you have a bad being for others, or if they're missing, you have no being Mm. for others. And that puts you into an existential quandary where you know that you exist for others, but currently you have no way to know how that functions. Hmm. Right. Which then affects your self-worth if that's what you've put it in. Right. And then you have no measure for your self-worth. That's right. So Sartre says that the reason that people want to have lots of lovers is because it diversifies that portfolio. But on the other hand, and this is the tension in relationships for existentialists, or at least Sartre specifically, your being for yourself is always confronted and challenged by your being for others. So when I'm trying to be the person you want me to be, I'm always less of who I am. Uh. We like to, as much as possible, avoid being for others so that we can be more of our, we can have more freedom. We lose freedom in the being for others, especially if the person that we're being for is very objectifying. So that's the objectifying language, right? So when you're the oh. other, the others that you're working with are objectifying you, you become more limited. Mm-hmm. It's important to meet those objectifying needs because we feel judged when our when the people we care about don't like what we're doing. So another way to think about this is I used to tell people when I didn't 
didn't have the language for it, that it's really hard to change when you're in a relationship. When I used to be in monogamous relationships, I would describe that the reason that I always took six months to a year between relationships was because I needed that time to, to build my personality boomerang back to my real personality right. from wherever I had drifted to with the person that I was Just with. To be for that other person. That's right, because I was being mm -hmm. for them. Right. And people resist your changing. So we are actually possibilities. We are being for itself. But when we change, other people lose some of their being for themselves because they're changing. They have projects that require us to do certain things or they like doing things. Like say you used to love sports and you stopped liking sports, but you have a best friend that all you ever did was watch sports and they'll get mad at you. Like, what? You don't like sports anymore. You love sports. That's ridiculous. That's who no. you are. Right. And it's, and it's hard for you to stop liking sports. So people will resist you changing because you changing is scary for them and it looks like a lack of control and it looks like less of them being able to work on their own projects. So it's something they have to cope with and deal with that takes energy. So they're going to resist that change. Sartre then says that that means that we like being the only being for others for each of our partners because it gives us the largest sense of control. Mm. Which in uh, non-monogamy or polyamorous ethics would be that description about that false sense of control we always talk about. Mm -hmm. So you think if I have just this one partner, I can make sure they continue to love me and they're not, I'm not at risk at losing them and they're not really out in the world and they stay as this safe object that's part of my plans, <laughs> my schemes my being mm -hmm. for itself. They don't stop liking sports. <laughs> yeah, and they won't stop liking sports. <laughs> but as soon as they start dating someone else, if that person's really not into sports and they're not right. into sports, there's much more chance that they'll change. So part of the reason it's scary to let your partners have other partners is that at some level we all understand that when we are providing the only reflection for someone, we control their reflection. We control how they act. And I'm not saying you know that consciously, but you're just at some subconscious level aware that when your friend gets more friends, if you ever thought the thought, oh, well, if they get new friends, they might get bad behaviors or they might start making bad decisions or, right, the peer pressure might change them. Right. You've never had any thoughts that sound like that. Those are all thoughts about you trying to keep being the only window for their being for others. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that, like just <laughs> you putting it into words blows my freaking mind. <laughs> it's such a good language. Yes. It's such a helpful language. It is. It, and I am going to start using that when I start dating new people. I am just diversifying my portfolio. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Sarah, you saw me like bust out. Like I couldn't. I was like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I'm using that. I'm diversifying my portfolio. Yes. Yes. <laughs> also, hopefully one of the things that we can get about from having these more authentic interactions with more people, so the loving relationships that are maybe non-sexual or the more sexual relationships or all of those, those layering of relationships allows other relationships to have that massively increased capital in your being for others, which really allows you, if you have enough of it, to be more yourself because you have a larger gallery operating around your being for itself and reflecting your being for itself as a being for others. Yeah. Existentialism says that every other philosophy tries to solve this fundamental, apparent, unreconcilable dichotomy, which is both that you feel yourself as an objective freedom floating in the world, but are constantly put upon by the world as an object. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So you feel constantly weighed down and pushed against and held down, and you feel your objective qualities all the time, but you huh. experience yourself as a freedom. And that confusion, that conflict, is what most philosophies try and separate for you. So when you talk about the, the body-soul dichotomy that the church talks about, where it's like, well, you should only act as a soul, your body doesn't matter. That's them trying to get rid of the problem. Mm -hmm. Instead of facing the problem, they're trying to just kill it. They say, just don't care what happens to your body, only exists as a soul. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And existentialism says you just can't do that, that everyone else has always tried to do that. The deontology says logic is all that matters, don't care about what you feel. Okay. And that doesn't make any sense, it isn't human, it isn't what we are, that you have to actually deal with, and again, the title of the book by Beauvoir, which summarizes existentialist ethics, is The Ethics of Ambiguity. Because what it says is that you live in that ambiguity, you stay stuck there. And so you both are an objective freedom that also has to deal with interacting with other people, you have to deal with being made object by other people, you have to deal with trying to be free while other people also want to be free, but your freedoms will always clash because anytime I just act freely, it affects you. So if I, for example, just decide to not come to the meeting for us to record together, you guys can't record. Mm -hmm. So I'm being an abject freedom, but really I'm being a dick. (laughs) (laughs) And Mandy's response, that's that reflection, right? And that's really important to us. To some extent, that is what we flee through inauthenticity. So when we lie to ourselves about things, we do that to make the objective claims of others easier. So when I say something like, I'm just a businessman, I try and write out ethical decisions as it's not personal, it's business. Mm -hmm. So that I don't feel bad about destroying someone's life, for instance. I'm fleeing from my existence as a freedom and hiding in an objective quality that protects me from judgment. Oh, you mean like pharmaceutical companies? Mm -hmm. Right, that's right. We're not judged as a freedom anymore. We're judged as an object. Mm -hmm. And that object is just trying to make money. Therefore, we're succeeding at just making money. Therefore, we're succeeding. Existentialism is going to claim that in the end of the day, you at a deep level understand that you're lying to yourself. And that's what causes people to still feel bad about those things and to not feel happy with their lives, even though they're millionaires, even though they're very successful, even though they're objectively successful, because they're in fact lying to themselves and creating this fake thing. Because the other thing is, you can only lie to yourself by knowing you want to lie to yourself, which means you know you're lying. Mm -hmm. There's no way to think the thought, ooh, I need to not be responsible for killing people other than having the thought. So when you're like, oh, no, no, it's not personal, it's just business, you already thought, I'm killing people. Mm -hmm. And then you were like, no, I'm going to hide from that. But you you can't, because you said it to yourself. So you know it's there. You couldn't have wanted to defend yourself if you didn't think right. that it was a problem yeah. in the first place. Right. You realized it was bad and then we're right. like, oh, I need to hide from that. And of course, the, the claim is that that's less work, which is another reason I like existentialism because I'm constantly saying the thing is, is all of this is work, but the work benefits you. <laughs> right. In, in the end, it was the only way really to solve your problem. So how does all this relate back to the original listener question? <laughs> so, <laughs> Good question, Michael. Now that we've <laughs> covered the background... <laughs> I think secretly he wrote this question. <laughs> I did not. I was just super excited to get this question. This is this is ground that I've wanted to cover for a long time. So I've been slowly working these words in, and now you can connect them to the other material, hopefully. Mm-hmm. What is the ethical framework for self-value? The ethical framework for self-value is whatever values you decided to give yourself in addition to providing for other people's freedoms. It's not an easy, fun answer where I can just say, oh, well, if you do these things, you're a good person. What you actually have to do is you have to think about what matters to you, and you have to make choices about saying, this is, you know, if, if I could choose what humanity would be like, it would be like this, and then living that way. Whatever you choose, you know, the only restriction is everyone else has to be free. So existentialism says a will that wills itself free must will all wills free. Absolutely. Right. That The only way you can be free is if you're not controlling other people. Okay. This is, this right. is also going to be the intrinsic claim. If you ever want to find the intrinsic claim in existentialism against slavery, against imprisonment, against using other people, against objectifying other people. It's because in all of those cases, you make them less free. But whenever you make someone else less free, you make yourself less free. There can't be a slave if there isn't a master. And if you're a master, you're an object, not a freedom. So you automatically okay. limit yourself whenever you limit others. 
what the listener is doing according, you know, assume we have a small snippet. So I'm not saying this for 100% certain. What it sounds like you are doing is it sounds like you are letting other people define the objective qualities in you that you think are valuable. So they'll say something like, the way that you do the dishes makes me really happy. The way that you're pretty makes me really happy. As opposed to assigning yourself values and then looking for feedback from other people about your assigned values. So if you decide that you need to be pretty, for instance, then first, it shouldn't matter if just your partners think you're pretty or if anyone does. So if you want to be pretty and you don't feel like you're getting enough of that feedback from your partners, you can start a YouTube channel for doing whatever it is that you do that makes you feel pretty, right? And get feedback. Or you can go out and talk to people, or you can have friends, or right? But the thing is, if you actually have a goal that you're aiming at, and that goal isn't making these people feel good, for instance, then you can get that feedback anywhere. You can get it from yourself, you can get it from people around you. People on the internet. <laughs> people on the internet. Although that's not <laughs> the best place to look. People on the internet are really cool. You just mentioned being, you know, starting YouTube, so. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, to some extent, what is this, right? Why do we have this podcast? I, you, all of us felt that we had a way to help other people, that we had mm -hmm. an approach that could make other people's lives better. And we chose that as a value for ourselves, that one of the things that's very important to all of us is helping other people be happier, but also just not have to start at the same zero point right. that we started at. Right. For me, that was so much of realizing that I had come far was, can I stop other people from starting well, at zero? I mean, everybody technically will start at zero when they come onto a polyamorous experience, right? So it's just, I personally feel my goal is more or less to help them get to 10 faster rather than not start at zero. Not everyone, because for example, our kids are going to absorb culture Touché. through their parents. I didn't think about that. And if we educate their parents, then the kids will have a different starting point than Ten. we had. Right. And zero is not the right way to put it because I'm acting like culture has made no progress. I wanted to move the culture okay. forward. Our cultural ethical sphere is amazing compared to yes. 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> like if you ever look at the laws on the books mm. 50 years ago, I mean, I guess I said before, I know a guy who talked to his grandfather about his experience being sold mm. on the block, right, as a slave. So there are people who have living memory of their of their relatives being wow. sold, right? That's how that's how close we are to that level mm -hmm. of ethical choice. <laughs> Incredible. Right. And so I wanted to participate in that human project of moving further away yeah. from that sort of position. Right. Yeah. And I thought one of the ways, you know, and so I'm working on that and there's people around me and they're going good feedback, you know, but this podcast also allows me to see and not even through direct responses, but to things like how many people are listening to it? Is it getting traction? Am I connecting mm -hmm. with people or am I just alienating mm -hmm. people? Right. And so it gives you real feedback on right. that. Nietzsche, who is my favorite existentialist philosopher, and, and I think fish. we all know, um, because my fish is named yeah. Nietzsche, so that was how it's you like your that. fish? <laughs> yeah. No, no, Nietzsche, the famous existentialist philosophy. Many people call him Nietzsche, but his name is actually Nietzsche. So sometimes when I say that, people know who I'm talking about mm -hmm. if I say Nietzsche. He is the one that's most famous for the phrase, God is dead. If you've ever heard God is dead, um, he's the one that popularized. That. He's not the first one that said it, but he's, he popularized. I think he added the line, God is dead and we have killed him. In Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I thought it was Trent Reznor. <laughs> so he says that the more opinions you can get on anything, the better. Yeah. To reference the Hagakure again, 
there's a line in that book that says, the first step to surpassing someone is discussing your problems with them. What they're saying is every time you tell someone what you're working on or what you need and discussing your own issues, you get another opinion. And just because you get that opinion doesn't mean you have to follow it, but it's one step closer in having better knowledge of the way to handle that problem. Mm -hmm. So I think outside perspectives are hugely important, but I definitely think Mandy's original comment to summarize is you don't want to put your eggs all in one basket, and that basket shouldn't be directly linked to romantic partnership either. Right. Right. There's a lot of really important feedback around you that has nothing to do with the people Mm -hmm. that you are dating. That feedback is about helping you understand how close you are to hitting your own goals, not telling you you're good or bad. You have to decide what you think makes a person a good person, and specifically what you think makes you a good you. And you have to go for those goals. And then you use other people to tell you sort of if you're doing that. Like, so I think I'm doing that, and people go, you really? That's a project you work on? Then you're not doing it. So the feedback becomes important, but it's not so outside. So now we can go back and we can answer, I think, some of the specific questions she has. So she talks about if you're only using yourself as internal validation, isn't that a value circuit problem? I think we said yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. But also, as long as one of your values is everyone else being free and you're getting a feedback that says you're helping other people be free and pursue Mm -hmm. their own needs, then other than that, you're free to have really whatever values you want. So if you say, like, what makes me a great person is I'm amazing at video games, (laughs) and I have a lot of fun every day, and I drink a ton Mm -hmm. of beer, but you're helping everyone around you be free and getting feedback on if you're doing those other three things and pursuing those projects passionately, I think you're a great person. One of my favorite lessons from countries that aren't America is that it's not just if you have money that you can be the best at anything. Yes. So one of my professors told me this story about going to Europe and being in a garden, you know, an outdoor garden, public garden. And there was a guy there who had been the groundskeeper for like 50 years. And he was proud of himself for having, you know, the most immaculate grounds, doing the best he could at that. And, you know, it wasn't a rich living, but he was the world, like, you know, one of the world's best groundskeepers. And that's great. You have a passion for that. That's how you want to help humanity. That's how you want to vote on what kind of things we should be doing. Fine. Hmm. <laughs> like, I have no problem with that. As long as at the same time you aren't somehow curtailing other people's freedoms, like lobbying for laws that arrest people for walking on the grass or something. Huh. It's interesting. I, I've, I've understood this, I guess, the basics of this, but this is the first time that this concept has really sunk in, particularly with your example of the dude who uh, values drinking beer all day and being really happy and playing video games. And the the ethical implications of the idea that if he's not taken away from anyone else's freedom, then by technicality, he's being ethical. And it just never it never sank into me that the value of what people do has everything to do with them. I think that's exactly right. And people will I mean, cause people will say, well, he's not he's throwing mm-hmm. his life away. Yeah. Says but says not, who? But it's yeah. weird. Says it's what life. value structure? It's weird because like I knew that in my head, but it wasn't until like just now that it really sank in. Like, oh, that's right, because I put a lot of value in myself by doing like everything I possibly can. I mean, I do. I do so much crap like in my schooling like I just I eat up all these opportunities and I I very much live with the idea that you only regret the opportunities you don't take and so I just take them all and so a part of me like looks at others who who feel the C's get degrees and I'm like why why do you feel that is important because what's important to me is pushing myself for all A's it I never really understood like if that that's what they value, then that's fine. But they could also turn around to you and ask why exactly. you push yourself for A's when they're going to get the exactly. same degree Exactly, and I've had have. people ask that of yeah. me, and I'm like, And they're yeah. going to have fun. Right, and they're going to have fun doing yeah. it. And yeah, and 
I don't know why I didn't. So it's just that's their that's their different uh-huh. value right. system. I don't know why they never sank in before. Like I knew it in, <laughs> in words. <laughs> All right, I'm good. I'm up to speed now. <laughs> the other term that I haven't brought from existentialism yet that I guess I have to add here is what's called anguish. So existentialism says you're in permanent anguish because you recognize yourself as a freedom, but you also understand the burden of that freedom, mm-hmm. that you have to give yourself value and then you have to value yourself on that value and how hard that is. Amen. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I wrestle with I have always felt that philosophy that people can directly connect with in the way that I feel like we three just did and directly Mm -hmm. benefit with is the most important kind of work to do, not to be right about it in the same way. I like that. The philosophy in academia is often not interested in whole system development anymore like it was 30 or 40 years ago or any time before then. Anytime you say, I want to handle what makes people happier, they say, that's too big. Hmm. You have to have a specific niche to really drill down deep to one question you're going to ask or one thing you're going to do. And all of the philosophy that means the most to me is set up as stories, as aphorisms, as prose, and not as the deep academic material. Mm -hmm. And to me, in the end, philosophy is the belief that humans with incomplete information who think about a question thoughtfully, on average, move towards better answers over time. Hmm. Because any area where you have all the information isn't philosophy, it's science. So if you know, Mm. how do we split water to make oxygen and hydrogen, and you're not guessing, Mm -hmm. you're not in philosophy anymore. So any of the areas that are still in philosophy are areas where we just have incomplete knowledge. So why why is ethics having incomplete knowledge, right? Well, one of the reasons is people's circumstances and experiences are constantly changing. We're constantly giving ourselves new values. New generations have to value themselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's not the kind of thing that should ever have an answer. There cannot be an objective ethics because every age, every person needs a new Mm -hmm. ethics. But by thinking about it thoughtfully and working at it and moving in the direction of attempting to be more ethical in the way that we treat each other, I think that we do. And I think that you can look at the progress last 50 years, last 100 years, last 150 years, and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's just slower than you'd wish it was. Mm -hmm. You'd like it to be an ideal world today. So I have to struggle with, I am eventually going to get to the point where I'll get to do some of this, but generally I don't spend my time writing the kind of papers that would get me immediately published immediate academic recognition, a teaching position. But I did some of those things in my master's as I was coming up, and I didn't feel like they impacted people. You know, I submitted writings to, and and people would review them and send stuff back, but I don't know that it changed their minds. They were looking at it more like a a math problem. Like, is it well-written? Is it Mm. Mm well-argued? Is it airtight? Does it avoid claims? Like, a Mm. lot of the papers I would write, I would have these sort of larger claims in them, and the feedback I would get was, well, if you delete 90% of the claims and only say this one little thing, then no one will be able to say you're wrong. Hmm. And I don't, but what's the value in, in making an right. argument? Isn't that just semantics mm-hmm. at that point? Like, I want to inspire people to be, to be happier, to do more, to be better. I don't, I don't want to be right. Right. Yeah. You know, okay. and in, in an objective sense, because there is no right in an objective sense. It's all this sort of self-valuation. Right. But that's really difficult to get up every morning and go, I'm going to continue doing the thing that I believe in, even though it's not as legible. And, I, and I'm at a point now where suddenly I feel very legible. I get up every morning and go, everybody thinks I'm doing a great job and I feel very good about <laughs> myself, you know, and, and that's great. But you can't always be there. And I'm not going to stay there. Right. Because if I didn't grow and change from here in five years, if we were at the exact same listenership, at the exact same level of publishing, the exact same level of sort of financial situation, I would not feel that I was continuing to grow and succeed and become legible, right? So being static never works. Humans, if there's one thing that's true of humans, we're constantly changing. Mm-hmm. 
You can't stand still. Mm -hmm. The hard part is, one, letting other people be them and remembering that that's just as good as what you're doing. Because you think your values Mm -hmm. are awesome because you spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. building them. But you built them. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that guy over there built his own values, and there's nothing that's intrinsically better about your values. Mm -hmm. Right. They're just what you like. And so letting him be him and you be you as long as those things don't somehow collide. And so then you start running into things like, well, what about that dude who just throws food on the side of the road? Is he worse? Yes, because that objectively damages the environment, which objectively damages all of our freedoms. Mm -hmm worse like you know bad guy. to some extent right <laughs> what about the person who's abusive to his partners obviously just a bad guy he's incurring you know setting other people's freedoms through violence and ling- linguistic violence and gaslighting it's just mm-hmm. bad you're just mm-hmm. taking someone's freedom away and treating them like an object for your engagement and pleasure as opposed to being a human being so there are places where you can still say that's just bad but it's only in the, the place that we all need in order to make our own mm-hmm. goals which is freedom mm-hmm So yeah, right, so when she says giving yourself carte blanche to love yourself no matter what, right, if you love yourself while you're abusing other people, that's unethical. I agree. Don't do it. (laughs) So then she jumps into a sort of an area that's... I think it's interesting that you keep addressing her as a she. It's interesting to me. Why is that Uh, Well, I don't know. Do we know the gender? I thought it was anonymous. We don't know. We don't know. I just... (laughs) No, I just... It just surprised me. So I'm really bad with names, by the way. Um, Names is... I have a learning disability for names and visual memory. And the the name on on the email that came in with the email is a a traditionally American female name, but I immediately forgot that name and did not reread it. So I I internalized it as a she at the beginning, but now I don't know what the name is. I just know that I... And I might be wrong. It might... You know, because a lot of names are both. Right. So I might have Mm -hmm. read that. So I apologize. We'll, We'll say they from here on out. That's a good point. Actually, I... I have decided to say they for everyone from here on out. Not just today, but like in general, that's the thing I'm working on. And it's the thing I'm bad about. I decided about, to incorporate but... the same practice. I haven't gotten, it hasn't been across my mind enough to make it like into my behavior. Um, it's just like, oh, I want to do that at this point. But yes. Yeah, well, and I got on that again linguistically because for a long time I resisted because I was frustrated that we didn't make a new word, Uh, but instead used a word that limited other word usage. So for example, in Sweden, which is the country that's had the most success with gender neutral pronouns, they brought in a bunch of Swedish linguists and had them come up with a new gender neutral term and then added that to the language. Why haven't we done that? Because America. We used they because they was actually singular once upon a time, which, and you still see that as a relic in our language when you say things like, when one goes to the grocery store, they are hoping for food. Yeah. And that doesn't sound weird because it actually was singular once. But then in common usage, things get confusing. So, for example, a local rights activist and their group went to protest at the Capitol today. They were arrested. Who was arrested? Right. Was it the activist or was it everyone? Yeah. That's why I've been resisting using it as a blanket term. Obviously, I use people's terms, whatever terms they ask me to use, that's what I use. Mm -hmm. But I was resisting doing it literally 100% of the time because of that linguistic confusion. And then my partner, who actually has a linguistics degree, is like, yeah, but if you just always use clarifiers. So you can say that same sentence like, this local activist and their group went to the Capitol and they were all arrested. There's no confusion. But you just have to get used to adding the clarifiers. So I'm not used to seeing clarifiers around plurals because usually the plural and the singular are the clarifier. But if I do that for every discussion, then I won't have that problem. So I'm going to work on that and you guys can call me out if I get it wrong. And this jives with our underlying standard of ethics, both because it's part of what we believe in, but also because not giving people oppressive gender norm labels increases their freedoms. So it's Mm -hmm. better to start as a neutral and let them decide if they really want you to use a specific gender tag. Right. Yeah. One of my partners, John, had a trouble with the the they them and he just couldn't get it and we had a very long discussion 
at RelateCon one night. There's probably 10, 15 of us sitting outside the hotel drinking by the fire trying to explain to John how he can call somebody they and he just couldn't grasp it and I just looked at him and I was like what is that chair and he was like what do you mean what is that chair I was like is that a he is that a she he was like we don't know then call it they and so now anytime that he has a problem they is chair and chair is they like that's that's like his the way he remembers it and I understand that can be offensive to some people because it's an object Right, but, but at the same time, it was it's probably a good learning tool. Right, it it helps him remember that not all things have to have a gender. Not all people yeah. have to have a gender. That he, you know, it, it can be a broad term like they or them. All right, so then we can now answer this question, I think. If we tell someone how to make us feel valued, so, for example, love languages, and then they follow our instructions, how can we determine the difference between feeling valued and being valued? So That's a very good question. I, I like that question. It doesn't have a simple answer. Is there a difference? Does it matter? What I was going to say is you have to decide if it matters to you. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, does it matter? So the, the first question is, does does it actually matter to you? Like, what is matter? what matters to you? It's weird to some extent to say that you, you care about the emotion behind the action instead of how you're treated. It's almost inverting okay. the old saw where people say, look at people's actions, not their words. You're almost doing the opposite. Mm-hmm. Basically, I'd rather know I'm valued than be treated valuably. But that's about what you think is valuable. Well, like, let's flip that around. Would it be better if you knew you were valued, but you weren't treated with value? If you knew your partner loved you and valued you, but maybe he or she didn't show you mm-hmm. with their actions. Or maybe they don't value you, but they sure treat you like they do. I would definitely rather have that one. <laughs> but, my, but my point is that exactly you would definitely rather have that right. one. Right. Yeah. My point is that the answer to your question is actually self-reflective. It's not, there's not an objective answer. The answer is which of those things matters to the person who asked the question. Mm-hmm. Right. When I was younger, what mattered to me was being known. What I wanted out of a relationship was someone to know me. Mm-hmm. And so it mattered much more to me if you did something small, but that showed you knew me. So one of my favorite gifts in this era was that one of my friends made me a bar of Fight Club soap by hand. Aww. I still have it on my wall. That's sweet. That is amazing. But so, I mean, that's like a, I mean, from a person that makes things for a living, that's like an hour, two hour project. You know, so comparatively to buying an object that I put on a wish list for like $70, which is functionally the same Mm -hmm. total value. This means much more to me because knowing me without me telling you what I needed or wanted had a value to me. Now, I never got anything of sort of what you would call significant financial value in the gifts exchanges with that friend, but I often found them more valuable than the gift exchanges that I have where I did actually get significant financial value from somebody. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, you could say that the second person who was doing gifts that might have cost hundreds of dollars and might have been many hours of their time valued me higher on the sense of treating me as valued. Right. But that the first person showed me that they knew me and that that was a thing that my value system said had additional value. Mm, Right. Now, as I've gotten older, I have shifted that system because I have realized that people don't all have the same skills. So being able to figure out what I like, like being able to know me, doesn't actually translate very well into how much they care, how good they are for me as a person, how good the relationship is, the way that I once thought it would when I was younger. The thing is, being able to correctly figure out what someone else will want is as much a skill set as like tracking, right? Being able to tell when a deer went through an area 
is a very specific skill set that many people just don't have. Right. Right. And so basically saying everybody has to be able to have this unique skill that's actually fairly rare, as it turns out, in my experience over my life, um, in order to get me to think they value me, for me, Mm -hmm. ended up not being a value that I wanted to keep. That as I got older, I realized that people that cared about me an incredible amount were being hurt by that value because they felt they could not express how much they cared to me. Mm. That then is about what value you've decided to set for yourself. If what matters to you is how you're treated by these people, which I think for most of us eventually, uh, especially I think Mandy and I agree, that that, that's what we in the end ended up caring about. That after a lot of trial and error, we think what made us happiest was people that acted like they cared about us rather than people that I guess said they did. Like that, that doesn't make a difference to me. If you literally every day get up and do all the things a person that cares about me would do. I mean, it'd be really weird. I got to admit if I was like 90 and on my deathbed, my partner of like 70 years was like, I just pretended to be nice to you all of these years and do everything you ever wanted for me to do. But really, it just doesn't make sense that that would happen. Like, yeah, it's just, I, you know, I think that the proof is in the action over time. I don't think you can keep up yeah, that like level. I purposely wasted my time on you. I wasted my entire life make any making sense. you think I loved you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd be like, I'd be like, thanks, <laughs> I guess. I had the a good life. Trick. I, I oh enjoyed being with you. You're a dumbass. Like, cool, <laughs> I guess. So the question is, does that, does that distinction matter? And is that even a real distinction? Or is that part of <clears throat> the, the body-mind dichotomy that the primary scripts that you've been taught and the primary ethical frameworks out there are telling you are separate objects. You know, for me, yeah. a person whose body I does think that's more all it. of the things that say they love me, they love me. We're also really <laughs> out of time, like really out of time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Because that was very dense. And for next time, since Valentine's Day is coming up and it's such a weird and contentious Yay! holiday for polyamorous people, um, is it damaging? Is it good? Is it just a greeting card company? I love Valentine's Day. I have a love-hate relationship. Actually, with I do too. Day. I love holidays. I I I I, 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 I love same. celebrating. Yeah. Me and, too. And to celebrate, I will make you it not problematic very quickly. Right. I will fix it. So, and I love buying things for people. I love shopping for other people. So Valentine's is Valentine's and Christmas are like my jam. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, so next week, next time, Valentine's Day. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, if you have Thank any you. questions, you. send them to us right on the <clears throat> web page, Facebook, yes, anywhere. And please give us your feedback as well. Um, and just tell us what you do and don't like about the podcast and rate us and such. We would love to hear. Less philosophical content. It's boring. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we appreciate Mandy and Sarah. They dumb Michael down a little. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> right, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.